Cowabunga, everyone. This is your beloved host, Bree, and this week I am, of course, very excited to be joined by Kill by Kill's Patrick Hamilton to discuss one of my favorite things in the world, the Final Destination franchise of films. But I'm also very excited to talk about one of my other favorite things, which is reproductive health. And I want to use this time prior to the episode to shout out and encourage you to make a donation, if you are able, to the Lilith Fund. The Lilith Fund helps people in Texas gain access to abortions if they cannot afford them. It is the oldest abortion fund in Texas, and now its services are more crucial than ever. It is also a trans-friendly organization, so please, if you are able to, go to lilithfund.org and make a donation. And if this sort of thing isn't your bag politically, then you probably shouldn't be listening to the show. <laughs> Take it easy, and thank you very much. Enjoy the show. We say that the hour of death cannot be forecast. But, <clears throat> but when we say this, we imagine that the hour is placed in an obscure and distant future. Never occurs to us that it has any connection with the day already begun, or that death could arrive this same afternoon. This afternoon, which is so certain, and which has every hour filled in advance. Welcome to Peak Show, where there are no accidents, no coincidences, and no escapes. I'm your host, narcissistic deity complex sufferer, Brie Rohde, and who is with me here today? Uh, my name is Patrick Hamilton, and uh, you don't want to fuck with that, Mac Daddy. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Patrick. You are the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Kill by Kill, um, and I will uh, eventually tell the story of how Kill by Kill came to be part of one of my favorite American Thanksgiving traditions. But uh, <laughs> if you want to tell me a little bit about yourself and, of course, about your podcast, Kill by Kill, and what you do with the amazing Gina Radcliffe. Uh, well, uh, myself, I'm, I guess at this point in my life, I'm a supposed entertainment professional. I just don't make money any other way. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm a writer professionally. And uh, Kill by Kill um, is a podcast I do with the one and only Gina Radcliffe. Um, and we explore probably the least discussed component of most horror films. And that's the characters, because characters in horror movies tend not to matter very much. They're there to die for our entertainment. And so we try to explore the, the scant characterization that we're given and extrapolate that into an entire show. Um, we started off because I, my wife said to me, please talk to, talk about Friday the 13th with somebody else, anybody <laughs> but me. And, um, I, I, I read Gina's stuff. Um, and, um, we were on a podcast, uh, not together at the same time, but separately that went through the boy next door minute by minute. And so I heard her stuff and I'm like, she's really, really funny. And. Um, she kind of had the same pop culture references and we would come to find that we are weirdly twins separated at birth <laughs> when it comes to our pop culture references. And, um, so I, I reached out to her, you know, late 2015 and said, would you ever consider talking about Friday the 13th with me? And so we tried various audio formats and we finally figured it out. So, and starting in 2016, uh, we started talking about Friday the 13th, death by death. 
hence kill by kill. Mm -hmm. And uh, it weirdly enough, I, I cannot believe that almost six years later we are still doing it. Uh, I find both heartwarming and depressing as, as <laughs> hell. <laughs> you know, they. I remember reading the statistic uh, late last year that most podcasts only make it or like the average episodes that podcasts make it to is eight episodes because there are so many that you know just stop at one or two and so i yeah. felt really happy that like i'm getting into like i think 30 or so because i just do this bi-weekly and uh mm -hmm. it's like oh that's not bad so i would say doing since 2015 like i don't know what i can say i have that's lasted since 2015 my relationship i suppose but that's about it um <laughs> right my uh, cat <laughs> yeah my child my marriage uh up until recently my dog and uh it's the only hobby i've ever had that's uh, gone this long yeah you know usually you just get tired of something or even a vice like mm -hmm. uh, when i used to hardcore play video games <laughs> um back when you had to hand crank video games i suppose <laughs> and for me i mean what keeps me going with peak show is just like it sounds cheesy but the people i meet and like i couldn't find anyone uh as neurotic as me about these things and so i'm like i'm just gonna do it on my own and get a different friend for each show and it's been so um exciting to like that you and Gina, who will be on a future episode about the Coen brothers, and um, Stephen Sadak, who I know has been on your show as well, um, that they've said yes. Because I'm like, you guys are <laughs> my podcast role models, and I, I am but a mere dumb Canadian. Um, who <laughs> <laughs> You're one of our brightest Canadians. I think oh. we can come out and say it. Well, thank you. Um, and uh, so if I may tell the story about how I got into Kill by Kill, it was uh, Absolutely. the depths of, I want to say, our second lockdown in Canada. Because um, we've had a <laughs> sure. lot more lockdowns, despite being run by natural human disaster Doug Ford. Um, do, do you recall about 10 years ago, there were stories coming out of Toronto about how our mayor smoked crack? And uh, yeah. so he's dead now, but his brother runs our province now. He the is the spirit of the guy who yeah. spoke crack has gone on in, in his family. Yeah, he uh, is tree. much more evil, but um, oh, <laughs> and, more competent. and yet, um, despite being very hard right and stuff, um, he our province has still had a lot more lockdowns, which I think people associate with like further left politicians. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. Canada defaults to lockdowns. And so I was getting into running and also crying a lot and um, just trying to, you know, distract myself. And then I saw uh, Steve Sadek of We Hate Movies post that he was going to be on your guys show for American Thanksgiving talking about Saw, which mm -hmm. I have or Saw 4. I have the biggest hate boner for Saw, like the Saw franchise. I am fascinated by how much I hate those movies. Like what keeps bringing me back to them? I don't know. I even did an episode on Saw with friend of the show, Mint Marcellus, um, because I'm just always curious about what brings me back to hating those movies. And I'm I'm very jealous of American Thanksgiving, like as much as it you know celebrates genocide or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. With food, what, what brings people together more than decimating uh, an indigenous people yeah. and turkey? You know, Canadian Thanksgiving, though, it's just this really benign, weird thing on a Sunday. And like the CFL, no one likes Canadian football. And so <laughs> uh, and like I, me learning like, wait, it's on a Thursday. You get like this really long weekend and you eat dinner yeah. at 2 p.m. What is this? And so I've tried to kind of form my own 
American Thanksgiving traditions so I can feel like a part of something. And knowing that you guys were doing Saw's Giving, I'm like, I'm going to put this on. I'm going to go for a run because I can't go to any other gym. And I'm just, and it was, <laughs> it was very dark because I just gotten off of work and I'm like, this is the most invigorating thing, you know, going out for a winter run while listening to, and I'm, I decided that's going to be my thing on American Thanksgiving every year the, that uh, work gets out, put on Saw's Giving or put on any Kill by Kill episode and just go for a nice blistering cold run. And it fills me with legitimate warmth. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I'm so happy. We tried so many gimmicks because, uh, you know, as a horror podcast, uh, we we gain a lot of audience building into October. Mm -hmm. And then after that, um, we have a bit of a honeymoon period at the top of November. And then by the time the day after Thanksgiving episode would drop, like, it would just, no one wanted to listen to us. They like, I'll see you in January is the <laughs> attitude. And um, so we tried various things that weren't obvious. Um, like the first thing we, we tried was uh, we did an episode where we talked about the uh, fake trailer for Thanksgiving inside of a uh, <laughs> grindhouse house, yeah. uh, with fellow Canadian, John Brandon. And, <laughs> It's a very funny episode. We talked about that two-minute trailer for nearly, uh, maybe over an hour. You'll be coming home so for the we, holidays is, in a body bag. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, there's so much specific stuff in that little trailer to, like, pick apart and figure out. And, uh, but no one listens to it. And, and I, I'm just heartbroken because it's a very funny episode no one listens to. Boo. And so finally... We had so many people who were like, when are you going to do Saw? When are you going to do Saw? When are you going to do Saw? And it's just not one of those movies that neither Gina or I were part of the lane. You know, it was yeah. not aimed at us. No. At, at our, it's at a our very millennial age. movie. Or franchise. Yes. Yeah. And I get it. Because so like the fondest memories I have, you know, uh, are like going to a movie on a Friday night and seeing that horror movie with a bunch of people. And I get that i that i completely understand and as such so i was like all right maybe we do it once a year and we just pick it at random because we have no idea what happened before or what comes after <laughs> now we're almost getting to the point where we kind of know what's happening like the revelation that saw six takes place in an underground zoo not unlike split <laughs> uh, I, just, it just blows my mind that there's this phenomenon of the underground zoo like i was like that that to me was like this makes it all worth it like well, we'll do this over and over again it'll be fine the secret with saw is that i think after saw 2 everything up until the chris rock movie kind of takes place at the same time yes yeah yeah they're all concurrent it's weird and it's so uh it's everything about it is as uh vital the the mythology around it is so in a bubble beyond <laughs> it just makes its own reality it and it's kind of beautiful in a way like nothing else is quite like it although uh, many people have tried and that kind of brings us back to what we're talking about here final destination a film franchise born in the aftermath of screen yeah that that finds a way to um, actually change what a slasher movie could be. Yeah. And so while, it, you know, people don't like to admit this, but 
Final Destination is as revolutionary as Scream's this is a slasher movie that is aware that slasher movies exist. Yeah. Final Destination transmutes that again to we're, we've stopped worrying about what the antagonist is. It's death. Everybody dies. Yeah. It's just death has chosen you to die next. That's very existential. It's very X-Files. And it is absolutely a, an elevation of where the slasher and horror film um, milieu was at the time. I, yeah, it, it fascinated me as a child. Now I have to say, first of all, for more on Saw and Scream, listen to our season one episodes on Saw and Scream with Mint Marcellus and Frederick Blickard. Um, but, uh, as you're screaming, Brie, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? I do have to divert. And I got, <laughs> I got in a little bit of shit because in the last episode, I forgot to ask this peak show tradition to Justin J. Case. Patrick, if you could describe for me a moment in your life that is Peak Patrick Hamilton. Well, I, you, my usual answer is that that I was I won a, a hip hop dance contest as a high schooler <laughs> that was judged by the UNLV men's basketball team. Oh, okay. Um, for this <laughs> though, at one point in time, my knees were that good, and I watched alone Yo MTV raps to that level where I just <laughs> practiced dancing by myself. Um, let's flash forward to when I was uh, at Universal Studios and I got a job in the planning office there. Um, and they were, they were trying to convert the back lot. And I, one of these days they'll actually do this. They, they were going to build apartments on top of the back lot facades. Like it was the Grove and people were going to live there and, you know, people, this is a, this is a back lot that has caught on fire once every 18 years and they were going to put people there living there. I just, it boggles the fucking mind. Who would, who would want to be there when a commercial shoot is, is filming for Acura, you know, in the middle of the night? I don't know. Anyways, they did this big party. It was on the back lows in little Europe and I run into uh, Stan Winston, the late great Stan Winston, who's a makeup and special effects designer. He created the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park, wow. the robots for Terminator. Reading, he directed Pumpkinhead. Uh, he's he was fucking amazing. And I ran into him, and literally my soul jumped out of my body. I was <laughs> so excited. We had this five minute conversation about how. The aliens he had designed for Aliens, the sequel, the James Cameron sequel, had changed my life. Like I had walked into that movie one person, I walked out another. And he was so gracious and so wonderful. On In this piece of real estate that has meant so much to me as a human being, like uh, that was pretty much it. It didn't really, you know, get much better until I married my wife, I'd say. Oh, well, yeah. And um, my one tangential bit of trivia, you mentioned uh, aliens and the great James Cameron. He was born in, but I believe never lived in my hometown of Kaposkasing, Ontario. Um, They've never tried to claim that as like a claim to fame, (laughs) which I really respect. Um, Because when I was 10 years old and moved to Timmins, Ontario, they, uh, they really got off on being the hometown of Shania Twain. That that's sure. all you know about Timmins, Ontario, is that Shania is from there. 
Um, <laughs> other big just the common know. refrain of "Come on, girls" is here heard out of every windowsill <laughs> as they're go, cooling girls. their pies. You're still the one. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. so as we're talking about Tween Bree, uh, we're talking about one of the series film franchises that holds such a special place in Tween Bree's heart, and that is Final Destination. Um, you know, in which, like you said, death itself is stalking a bunch of um, fairly flat teens and young adults uh, coming at them in the form of flying uh, flying logs, fences, uneven bars, all the big threats in the yeah. world. Um, so- <laughs> Engine blocks flying out of one car and <laughs> slamming into another. Uh, yeah, it's, None of these uh, passed uh, occupational the- health and safety. <laughs> <laughs> The genius of it is like people can die in any number of ways. And so it really is, it becomes insanely inventive Mm -hmm. throughout even the worst of it it still has moments of shock and awe that you can put two and two together and that ends up killing somebody. And whereas I think it is increasingly difficult to figure out a way to stab somebody with a knife yep. that still shocks you. I I say this sadly in terms of cinematic, you know, death, mm-hmm. it, it's difficult to do without suffering involved. And I, mean, I don't dig suffering, but I do <laughs> enjoy say pr- uh, surprising fanciful death. That's why I think like the last on-screen death that really got me excited um and probably when i reveal what the death is people will feel disgusted with me and (laughs) feel angry that i've been teaching children for the last 15 years but um the the decapitation hereditary i think is probably one of the most creative on scene deaths that you know didn't involve didn't necessarily involve the same Rube Goldberg magic as Final Destination, but it did really feel like a Final Destination death in terms of the elaborate setup of everything having to be in the right place. And you feel that sense that it was a, a mysterious force that put that pole there and put that deer there for him mm-hmm. to swerve the car. I love Hereditary. I could easily Ari Aster make more movies so I can do a peak show about Ari Aster. Um, <laughs> Ari Aster, who's like barely older than me, make more fucking movies, young man. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we talk about the history of the franchise, but we also like to talk about our own histories of the franchise with the franchise. I'm going to make Patrick feel old as I talk about my history of Final Destination. I saw the first movie when I was 12, although it had been out for a couple oh, years. I'm so sorry. It came out in 2000, so I would have been 10 or 11. I was born in 89. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) I know. I need a paper bag to breathe. No, please go on. If it helps uh, being a dance teacher, my bones are Gen X. Um, But uh, (laughs) um, so, yeah. And it had been out for a couple of years. This is um, on TV on a Friday night, I wasn't doing anything because I was a fucking loser sitting in my basement. And it, it's like, oh, this horror movie's on TV. I loved horror as a kid. I, you know, part of my villain origin story is that I saw The Shining when I was eight. I saw Scream when I was seven. So, uh, and I saw I saw Friday the Thirteenth around then as well. I was. Uh, oh, good God! I had great parents. Don't get me wrong, but uh, so <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, 
I had to get permission to watch the 76 remake of King Kong when it came on cable. They were just so afraid that if, if I saw that that beautiful woman getting blown on by a giant monkey, that it would, it would turn me into something terrible. Oh, and I mean, it, it did. did. <laughs> yeah. So they were right. It turned you into a podcast or so. No, my parents weren't even aware. <laughs> is, is there anything worse? <laughs> they weren't even aware that I was watching this movie. They were probably just, you know, gone. like it was Friday. So they might have been going and like playing cards with their church friends or something. And sure. uh, the thing that was terrifying to me watching this as a child is that I had very little experience flying as a kid. Like we were kind of poor. Mm. We didn't take vacations. There wasn't a major airport even where we lived. So we almost never flew. Now, do the math here. Uh, if I was 12 years old and born in 89, what just happened that makes this a terrible, I can't believe this was allowed to be aired as a Friday night movie on TV. This was maybe a few months after 9-11. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if it was a Canada thing, but... Um, ha- 9-11 still felt extremely fresh to me, someone who wasn't even particularly affected by it. Um, mm-hmm. And watching this brutal, brutal air disaster scene 10 minutes into the movie, I was like, yeah. my heart, I don't think I'd ever been so like shaken because like having watched horror from a young age, you start to know like, oh, that's really fake or whatever. People that or blood doesn't look like that or whatever. Um but this felt really visceral. And then um, to follow it up pretty quickly with Todd's death, which was excruciating to me. And that was, I think it was someone in like my sister's grade or something. We just heard like, oh, the student like hung himself or whatever. And like it was, you know, that was how I learned, you know, that people do that. That was excruciating to watch as well. And so I actually had to question, can I make it through this movie? And then the girl from Saving Silverman got hit by a bus. And I laughed and I laughed and I laughed and I laughed. So, it still gets me. Yeah. When I, well, let's, let's uh, bring uh, my decrepit ass into this conversation. <laughs> so uh, when this film premieres, I am flying back and forth professionally because I, I now have a job while Bree's twi- 12 in, in her basement. <laughs> I'm flying back and forth from Los Angeles to Osaka, Japan to open up Universal Studios Japan. And so flying has now become a regular thing for me. I'm either going to Orlando to recruit people from there. I'm going to Japan to look at how the seaplane is launching at Waterworld. And I have not, again, it sounds, it sounds like I have authority here. (laughs) I do. I did not. I don't know how I ended up in this situation other than I, I was in the right place at the right time. But uh, I would, I was flying business class constantly. Nice. Um, and so flying had become this, uh, while I, um, I was solidly middle-class, uh, my parents, we went one place for vacation every year. Mm-hmm. We went to Balboa Island and Newport beach. Aww. Um, uh, and we would live in the tiny house. And, um, so we, we didn't, I didn't have exotic places, but I did remember this uh, story that my dad had told me as we were getting on the plane to visit my grandparents in Calgary, Alberta, which was, um, I, you, we, I'm glad that there's a walkway here and we don't have to walk up it, directly into the plane on the tarmac because I did hear a story of a one woman who got sucked into an engine. <laughs> and 
that the idea of this yep. consumed me, right? Yeah. That, that, that you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time and have this terrible thing happen that maybe you could foresee, but no one can actually believe it actually happens. And, that's the super interesting thing about Final Destination and the Final Destination deaths to me is that a lot of them really capitalize on some of those like not even weird deep fears, but like I'll even go as far as to say intrusive thoughts that a lot of us have. Like, yes, I, um, yes. I it's funny because as I've been talking on this podcast about my bipolar diagnosis, I had this thing with my head that I thought was a bipolar thing. And then I learned that it's just a thing that happens to everyone, which is nice um, or happens to a lot of people, which is like the call of the void of like when I'm on a balcony or something, I I don't want to jump off, but I can't stop thinking about jumping off. And like or when I'm driving on an elevated highway, I just think like. I could fly off right now. And I think like for for that reason, I have this like whenever I run by barbed wire, which um, being where I used to live in Toronto was a lot, um, barbed wire freaks me out because I think of how much it could hurt me if I just like slipped into it the wrong way or something. And so the fact that Final Destination actually takes like, okay, barbed wire fences are a freaky concept. Let's fling one at a guy. Like, I think yeah. it's really cool that way. So like, And that's the second one, which it came out on DVD the summer before I started high school. So that was like one of the first DVDs I rented and would have worn out if it was possible to wear a DVD out. And uh, (laughs) that was also when I got really into DVD commentaries as well. So I listened to the DVD commentary on the first and second. There's a really great commentary on the first one with just Shirley Walker, who did the scores. She's fantastic. It was just great to hear her thoughts on everything. Great score, very underrated score in those movies. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. It, it's amazing how, you know, you could think of them as as low quality product. And I, I think to a degree, New Line did mm-hmm. um, because they they had always turned around, you know, cheaply made horror. And sometimes that horror was made by directors who would go on to do big things. Sometimes that would be the last thing they were ever allowed to do. And that was probably <laughs> good. But uh, you know, Final Destination is just one of those stabs at greatness from them where they're like, all right, here's this really interesting script that was meant to be an X-Files episode mm-hmm. and then was converted into a movie. And then you get these guys who made their bones making great, funny, interesting episodes of the X-Files, let them run on a movie. And it converts a what could have been a tired really uh, tired again you know uh genre of the subgenre of the slasher movie mm-hmm. and converts it into something metaphysical it just adds a supernatural element that has not always been there if it is is like you can't kill jason Voorhees. <laughs> and, you know why like, fine, i don't know yeah. we needed another movie for this summer that's why <laughs> yeah and uh, they take it in this much more fanciful direction. And as a result, it just, it is very imaginative. Yes. And as such, it just elevates it a, a little bit in a, in its own lane. It created it its own lane and it just burned brightly and burned out and, real fast. Well, and I think it's interesting because that is what gives it a bit more sticking power in terms of theatrical releases as well. Then say a Friday the 13th or, or a Jason movie, um, or, or even a Hellraiser is like, um, if nothing else, 
even you know that this is not a particularly a film filled with not particularly interesting characters you know that no protagonist is particularly fleshed out by the really fourth but kind of third movie aside from mary elizabeth winstead like there's no one of note in these movies um <laughs> right i mean david keckner is in the fi- it, david keckner if you're coming in doing your heroes big work. get is david keckner um <laughs> <laughs> well you know it was the time yeah. you know you wanted to juice up a movie you, you add the keck but uh so yeah you like that is what keeps people coming back because if nothing else i want to see the smush and uh yeah so i mean I, I have my issues with how some of these deaths are executed, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about the history now of Final Destination, a.k.a. Brie charmingly paraphrasing Wikipedia, um, as we've said. And it's I think everyone kind of knows the lore of how this was an X-Files spec script uh, written to get Jeffrey Riddick, uh, he, uh, or Riddick, Chronicles of Riddick, uh, written so that he could get a TV agent. Um, but uh, it was developed into a film with uh, X-Files alum- alumni, James Wan, Wan or Wong? James Wong. Wong. James Wan is Saw. James Wong, Glenn Morgan, and, uh, you know, making it into a teen ensemble movie. I guess they did the teen ensemble thing to just fit in with the big teen slashers of the day. That, I mean, it is of a formula yeah. because this is post 96 or really 97 because Scream comes out literally the last week of, of yeah. 96. Yeah. And so it was such a phenomenon. It was one of those movies that started, I think it, it started at like 12 million and the next weekend it was 24. Mm-hmm. That's how word of mouth went because people just didn't know what that was. Yeah. Up until that point, the the 90s is not really filled with great, uh, I wouldn't say it isn't filled with great horror. Horror had changed to something like Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the uh, Wolf, um, a movie I very much enjoy, but is completely odd, where they had attempted, uh, and dare I say, to elevate horror and make it into this grand tradition mm-hmm. where big movie stars would participate in it. Yeah. And it wasn't just teen slashers. That's old no one cares about that anymore Mm -hmm. and then scream just goes oh no people like this they just like it when it's witty and well done and the the cast is all interesting and attractive and they're like oh oh well we can shit that out and (laughs) they just flood the market from that moment on with uh, versions of scream and i will say craft the craft also came out the summer of 96 and is partially responsible for this as well. Yes. That did very well. It's filled with very attractive TV actresses. And very irreverent characters. The The characters in the craft yes. are more irreverent. Yes. And, and they're all individual. There's a lot going on to it. It's it's It has something to say, even if it just touches on things like racism. A touch of racism. Just a touch. Um, just a As skish. a treat. Uh just like a salt bay of it. And uh, so as a result, there's this flood of, we can grab all of these CW Fox teen stars Mm. and have a vehicle for them to try them out as movie stars. And that's what this sort of genre becomes up until, um, you know, final destinations kind of like um, 
the late peak of it. Yeah. And then um, 9-11 happens and everyone goes, what would happen if we tortured people? And then that becomes a fucking decade. Yup. Um, and it's interesting because <laughs> with the casting of Final Destination, I would say like you anchor it with your B-lister seems too high, C-lister seems too low. So I'll say your C-plus listers of like Ali Larder and Sean William Scott and Kerr Smith. Devin Sawa, and then you round it out with a couple little like D-listers or Canadian day players. My favorite being Chad Danella and his really bad Long Island accent. This man is Canadian. Oh my God, that accent no. is out of nowhere. <laughs> no one else in the movie has any accent Soiton. next to it, so including Kerr Smith, who's trying to be his twin brother and like or Brent, where, Brendan was, Fair where was this kid raised like in a pocket universe of brooklyn within their household <laughs> yeah i, I it's, it's mystifying no, the, to me the best thing not only is this uh nobody actor in a saw movie he's in what i think is the worst which is the 3d one called jigsaw he is also in one of my favorite bad movies which is disturbing behavior and uh oh now, i love disturbing behavior you have heard of blackface let me tell you about albinism face because this guy is in <laughs> albinism face for the movie and he's doing this really weird kind of like almost Jamaican accent. And I'm like, is he supposed to be a Jamaican person with albinism? <laughs> this feels just so know. wrong. Um, he he cannot he act. Should, he sounds like you should be introducing Big Sean on Sarah. Like, <laughs> oh. oh, that is a very precise reference. But um, yeah, it, Disturbing behavior it is the other component of that late 90s horror boom, which is the X-Files influence on uh, horror. Yep. Up in, you know, there was this part where horrors played out and then it starts to work on TV and everyone instantly associates it with the Twilight Zone because there is a Twilight Zone element to it, which is what if the world had this and then... You can do that every single week. Like one of the world had a leech man. Uh, you know, what if there was one vampire yeah. and she seduced you <laughs> <laughs> while your partner's having a baby, but we can't say that on television. Um, and um, so everyone's kind of uh, seeing where the X-Files twist is going to happen. Yeah. The craft is, is, is part of that. And then disturbing behavior is a big x-files influence movie the director of that film was a, an x-files person mm -hmm. he's now one of the people you hire to uh direct a pilot of a television series <laughs> he's he's very good yeah. at it. he has a lot of ep credits um because i've worked for the cw for so long like i've seen a lot of his work cool. and he, he's very good at it yeah. um but he always adds a visual flair to it and disturbing behavior <laughs> is a truly interesting film filled with people who do not look like teenagers. No. Um, uh, and, uh, and it's just, it, it is weirdly prescient in a lot of ways of that robotic white guy behavior that, that we, we will tolerate anything so long as you get good grades mm -hmm. and appear to be a pillar of society. And we brought, Oh my God, I could go off on disturbing behavior. Well, time, so, sure. uh, and to bring us back clumsily, but, uh, that's the Brie way to final destination. It, um, so I just listened to you and Gina and some guest friends did two really wonderful episodes on the first final destination. And, um, me being a, you know, like, <laughs> With me 
picture 12 year old Brie just watching DVD commentary after DVD commentary in her sure. basement mm-hmm. and you wonder is that kid going to turn out neurotypical no no is <laughs> um so there were a few uh, a few things i think Gina had uh, made a remark about with uh, the way Sean William Scott uh playing Billy Hitchcock aka proto Doug Glatt was written and outfitted mm-hmm. and she was like was he it feels like he was originally written as a fat kid and they just didn't bother re-outfitting it's because he was um i found yes. the original screenplay online i found it when i was 14 but it is still up there and he is introduced as Billy Hitchcock, heavyset with a New York Rangers jersey. So, indeed, they just bought a wardrobe much bigger. They bought the costumes ahead of time and just fit Sean Williams yeah. Scott inside of it. And it, it, the weird thing is, it's not particularly out of place because every male character, with the exception of one, is wearing clothes that would, like a, li- a college linebacker should yeah. be wearing. It was of the time, but it's just wild to watch, see these tiny tiny people in these big michelin man costumes <laughs> walking around yeah and uh yeah it's also weird for me seeing someone wearing a jersey when they're going on a plane now again i wasn't buying things for myself in 1999 i have to assume that jerseys were always a bit of an expense because like i i am the biggest hockey fan i know i own one jersey because I just can't bring myself to spend $200 on another jersey. Uh, so I'm really glad Morgan Riley signed with... I have like a bingo card um, of things that happen on every Peak Show episode. And I got to tell myself, stop bringing up hockey. But either way, Morgan Riley signed with the Leafs but for... But part of your DNA. It truly like, is. It's like, I, I see you on Twitter. I know that you're talking about hockey. You are displaying what you love. Just don't love apologize so for loving something. There are worse things in the world. But yeah, I got I to gotta really hand it to Morgan Riley for signing with the Leafs for another eight years because that means the $200 jersey I have is relevant for another eight years. But <laughs> so I got to ask, why would Sean William Scott, who I think is the most endearing part of that first movie, um, yeah. you know, like everyone always says, like, we never see him play this kind of character. Um, I would argue that he plays that character again when he's Doug Glatt in Goon, another fantastic hockey movie. But um Mm-hmm. I would never wear my like if I'm wearing my jersey, it's because it's game night, and I'm right. not because I'm about to board a ten hour flight to Paris or however long it takes. Um, so yeah, he was written as a fat kid. Uh, the other, of course, is the fact that Clear Rivers, Clear Rivers, <laughs> is calling Clear Alex Rivers. baby. Um, so there is not only oh a deleted sex scene, but it's also a whole ass alternate ending on the DVD. Um, and this yeah. is. Far more X Files y. Uh, and the end, which is also explains why everyone in the ending looks completely different because that is like a six months later reshoot. Um, Alex does die when he saves Clear in the car and she's just taken a pregnancy test and turns out she is 100% that pregnant bitch. And the mm. epilogue is that she's had this baby and Kerr Smith is like helping her raise it. And because they gave, they gave birth to life that was never meant to be they've cheated death um which is an ending or which is a concept that they would explore in the second movie like life that was never meant to be it also doesn't explain how Kerr smith is still alive if you ask me but good for him um and then uh there's another half interesting thing which was you were speculating about the disgusting canned food that uh, alex eats dvd commentary yeah. factoid time okay uh, devon sawa said it was mushed up banana Okay. Yeah, so it makes it way less gross. It's just bananas. Like 
<laughs> oh, wait. And also the Alka-Seltzer thing, because everyone remarks about mm-hmm. the Alka-Seltzer scene. DVD it's content. An they, yeah, because yeah. the they said test audiences were just reeling from that bus hit and they needed like a few seconds to kind of like start listening again. So I think that's that's practical. It comes off as, you know, not spawn con, but product integration, as as we say in the biz. Um but so yeah, yeah, that's Final Destination, third at the box office behind Aaron Brockovich and Mission to Mars. And it went on to gross uh, 112.9 million globally. And I don't know, I feel like it's less of a big deal now when R-rated horror grosses a lot. Well, now meaning, I guess, just pre-COVID, because now it's a big deal mm-hmm. when anything not a Marvel movie grosses 100 million. But um, it's, you know, R-rated horror for the box office, the gold standard was set by Scream. It's not actually that far off of Scream because Scream was 173 no. million, but that was also thanks to like a Spring 97 re-release. So I think at that point, it just shows that teen horror was where you want it to be. Um, reviews yeah. for this were all over the map. Um, Rotten Tomatoes has it more bad than good and uh, audience scores average B minus. Um, but it's become kind of like retroactively defended. In 2010, Nicholas Hyman of Metacritic included it among his 15 movies critics got wrong. Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars. Mike LaSalle was positive about it. I've never talked to anyone who doesn't like Final Destination. They either haven't seen it or they like it. Like it's, yeah. And even if they haven't seen all of them, they're just like, oh yeah, that's a really fun movie. I love the deaths. Like, I think everyone who's seen it has something a little positive to say about it. It's a charmer. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it does not have grand ambitions, but it is executed very well. For example, that bus death, you know, that's, uh, believe it or not, like a very classy reference to the uh, 42, 44 cat people. Um, uh, the Val, Val, uh, Valerie Luton, mm-hmm. um, Val Luton produced uh, and co-written film. Uh, he has a bus scare in that. That's pretty legendary. They try to redo it with a trolley in uh, the remake, which is very sweaty. And um, this was kind of an homage to that. You can see that they're homaging a lot of stuff in the character names. Uh, something we should stop immediately. Well, the one thing is you can guarantee that all of these characters are at least going to have a last name because we just have to right. like sweatily introduce, by the way. This guy, this girl's last name is Corman. There you yeah. go. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it should have stopped at uh, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, another Canadian classic. <laughs> but um, uh, my the reaction in the theater when I saw it was literally if every single person had been poked in the butt with a <laughs> It just literally screams. Mm-hmm. They were, it was so, because it sets it up in an impossible situation. There are, there's construction in two of the places where the bus could possibly come from. So it's literally impossible for this bus to go by at that speed Mm -hmm. and hit her the way it is. And it is designed to be that way. It it, It tells you that a bus is going to come, but shows you two routes. A bus cannot come. And she still gets it. It really adds to the surrealness of it. Yes, absolutely. It's like it's like it, it teleported from another dimension, mm-hmm. and as such, it it's like lit the the theater on fire. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, now 
when you see a movie, it's predominant, uh, particularly a horror film. The trick they do is it's like the pixies where instead of going loud, 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 they go quiet, 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 loud. And so you have those quiet moments where no one wants to talk. No one wants to, you know, uh, dig into their candy because we're all, we can't say anything. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, a quiet place. It's don't breathe. It's it also hereditary or all these things where I don't, if I say anything, yeah. something terrible is going to happen. Something terrible is going to happen anyways, oh, yeah. everybody. And uh, so it, it's weird how I, that is a very visceral memory of how people reacted to it. And it's something everyone starts to chase from that moment on. How do we make this bus scare happen? Mm-hmm. And sadly, too many people resort to the cat. Don't go for the cat scare. It's, it's, Mm-hmm. please. So um, try to go for the bus scare. Yes. So New Line was pretty eager to get working on the sequel. Um, they did get Reddick back to write, but Morgan and Wong were not available. Um, so they, I don't, I feel like this had to have been part of some sort of weird negotiation deal because they got, uh, they paired him with the two guys who were also working on the butterfly effect. One of my favorite bad movies. Um, and um, <laughs> truly terrible. as much as I, but Amy smart's so fucking good. You know that Ali Larder was originally considered for that role too. Um, and sure. Yeah. Because they have parallel careers. And for some reason, Amy smart, does it, I, I love Amy. Smart. She, she was so good. She just has like such a beautiful energy about her. Um, but one thing, even though I would say Final Destination 2, I really enjoyed and still enjoy, when you know that it's written by the two guys who wrote The Butterfly Effect, um, besides the fact that they use the exact same um, mental institution loony bin uh, for both uh, movies, yeah. mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. they also, um, you can really hear it in the screenwriting, and part of that is also just the era, but there's a lot of real edgelordy shit in in. Yeah. Uh, the dialogue of um, a Final Destination two, um, I and all the characters like, what if this guy was a cokehead and this girl's smoking <laughs> cigarettes on on the treadmill? Which okay, here's my fun connection to that actress Keegan Connor Tracy, who hasn't been in much else. Um, she is an alumni of my university, Wilfrid Laurier University, and uh, I think I tell this story to everyone off mic because it. it it just explains a lot about my like microphone anxiety. I used to have the job in university that everyone hated, which is if you ever get a call from your alma mater asking if you want to give them hundreds more dollars for their alumni association. Sure. That was my job for, you know, three and a half years in, in university because uh, it was the best paying job on campus and the only one where they let you sit down. It also crushed your soul. But so mm-hmm. I'm in, you know, I'm going through my robocall system and her name comes up. And I'm like, I know exactly who this person is. And I, I couldn't. I'm like, and and so I, you're not supposed to fake a refusal, but I'm just like, I, I'm recycling her back into the pool. She is someone else's problem because <laughs> I can't bring myself to get rejected by the, the woman who got a pipe through her head in Final Destination. But she's flush in cash from all those sci-fi shows that she did and, for uh, the sci-fi channel. And noted 40 days and 40 nights. Very, very problematic movie. Uh, 
with <laughs> Josh Hartnett, whatever happened to him. Um, oh, that one. Yeah. I was I was thinking of the the Harrison Ford one. Oh, no. Um, oh, no, it's six days, seven nights. Yes. That's what that is. Much shorter. Um, much shorter movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but one thing that really fucking works for me with Final Destination 2 is they got David R. Ellis to direct. You get a stuntman, a stunt coordinator to direct your movie. It's going to be awesome. Um, Again, Bree's DVD obsession stories. The DVD had this really detailed behind-the-scenes doc on how they did all the deaths and all the practical effects they used. It is bananas. It is amazing. Like, um, even showing the way they made everyone's innards by, like, filling condoms up with goop and how they they crushed the kid with the pane of glass and how they made his, like, optimum splatter. Oh, I loved that. And I became so engrossed in like, and if you are afraid of horror movies or if you're afraid of blood or get squeamish, I would highly recommend watching those kinds of documentaries because they actually help you really cope with like knowing what's real and what isn't. So, um, Final Destination 2 grossed 90.4 million globally, making it the lowest grossing of the franchise. Pretty mixed reviews, but I'd say not as many positive ones as the first. But I think it's one that lived on more via home video Absolutely. than it did its theatrical release. Because I think people are like, well, how how do you even extend that story? Mm-hmm. It was somewhat discounted as that. And then the legend of that opening, which I would argue is the peak oh, of so Final Destination. Um, it, it gets close to that in other places, but that is the pinnacle. Yeah. And as such... Um, it's the one that, that gets brought up in conversation over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's the one that kind of now ev- everyone is trying to, to chase that opening as far as how can we make something that's that cool? Yeah. And the time they get close to it is five, but it's, that neither, that's neither here nor it's there. It's the one thing that besides maybe five is most common and relatable to everyone and unavoidable. Like, I mean, flying on a plane is pretty common. If you are like me and don't like flying, you can limit how much you fly. Um, I have never right. been to a racetrack in my life. I've never been on a real roller coaster in my life because, I mean, I never went to a real theme park growing up. But um, number two, like... I live in a very tiny town about an hour and a half away from Toronto. Um, like driving on driving on a highway, you kind of have to drive on the highway to get anywhere you want here. And so like being behind a logging truck, especially like I grew up in a forestry town, like that they're everywhere, man. So number three was actually supposed to be the final because I think we were under the delusion that Hollywood knew how to end shit. Um, And it was the final uh, movie scored by Shirley Walker. She passed that year or maybe a couple years later. Um, But it represented the return of Morgan and Wong. But also they, they killed off Allie Larder in the second because... The, originally she was supposed to round out the trilogy she had a uh, she revealed during filming i guess that she wouldn't be able to because of another commitment i think it was heroes maybe and uh so that's when they killed her for good measure crisped her up um but uh i think the big big bad here is that you didn't bring back tony todd and i don't know i've tried yeah. to kind of look into it I don't know why they brought him back or didn't bring him back. If it was a scheduling problem, if they didn't offer him enough money, he does lend his voice to two little parts. That's a fucking cheat to me because Tony Todd is the most fun part of both the first and second movie. 
Yes. Uh, he's great. I mean, if you can add Tony Todd to your movie, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, he's a consummate human being and he's such an amazing presence because he, he adds that one personification of a villain mm-hmm. uh, that it really doesn't have. There's no, he's not a silent killer a la a Michael or a Jason. He's also not overly verbose like a Freddy. Mm-hmm. Death is just something that happens and that is what kind of makes the Final Destination franchise great is that everybody does die. You just don't want it to happen today. And we all have that. We don't, we don't wish, we don't want to be squashed by a giant log <laughs> today. And so uh, he is the person that sort of, um, he's, he's death's hype man yeah. when it comes down to it. And, and um, he doesn't know, all he knows is that, like, you're going to die. You mess with death's design. And that means that there's a very good chance that it's going to come right back around. Uh, and uh, I do miss him in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my guess is scheduling. Probably. My guess is these things were so haphazard that they're just like, we have a window for for our our. our two main uh, writer and director duo we've got a cast we're filming in this location he's like i'm in bulgaria and they're like okay we'll get you for some voice stuff because you're our good luck charm maybe tony todd doesn't want to come to vancouver this year um god these movies are so (laughs) vancouver um (laughs) yes yeah um and there's one thing i'll one final thing i'll say about tony todd is that I would never describe his performance as chilling when I think about it. It's actually very warm. He has this enigmatic smile and it's like he's enjoying fucking with these guys, but he's also just like, it's because he's been around. He knows how this works. He's surrounded by death all the time. And it's like, he's he's the one who's really onto things because he has accepted that death is going to happen. And so I love his scenes. They use him just enough. So for uh, Final Destination 3, worldwide gross was 117.7 million. Very meh reviews. The general consensus seemed to be that it was fun, but strictly formula and added nothing to the mythology because the one thing to- A formula yeah. it invented, I might Yes. Well, <laughs> we borrowed it from somebody yes. else. Although technically you can say this is an extension of the omen type of death. Mm-hmm. In the omen, you know, the devil- uh, you know, protects the Antichrist by putting people in weird situations like an alleyway where they just happen to be installing large panes of glass that can decapitate you. <laughs> so it, it's not wholly original. It, it just, it created its own formula where they recontextualize the omen formula to not be malevolent, simply yeah. It happens. So speaking of things that simply happened, um, The Final Destination, a.k.a. Final Destination 4, I think it's <sighs> kind of been renamed. It was greenlit purely because of how well the third one did. And it doesn't exist. Um, now, for a film <laughs> that doesn't exist, it did bring in $186.2 million, a 28% score on Rotten Tomatoes, making it the worst reviewed of the franchise, but definitely brought in the most. But that... that movie like i had to re-watch it recently because i forgot every death i forgot every yeah. death and like i do remember there was a cross burning scene you shouldn't remember it. like although i i may be speaking out of turn he doesn't actually burn the cross but he is going to do it and that's when he gets dragged by his truck down the street 
still think that's a dicey thing that we don't have to do. You don't have to put the N-word in your movie to tell me that this guy is racist. You can do other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Back when it was fanciful that a racist still existed. That's, this yeah. Is, uh, like, this is something in the past. I can't believe someone's still into this. Oh. Now it's people's entire this, identity. This whole racism thing, it's going to flame out. Um, so yeah. next is a film that may or may not exist, Final Destination 5, which I think if you were to compare it um, to all the other films, it technically wins in terms of the best combination of gross and reviews. So it grossed 157.9 million and it's the only i mean and to be fair i do not put that much stock in rotten tomatoes but it is kind of your best little time capsule so it got it's the only one of all five that has a score of over 50 percent. it's 62.7 percent um and a lot praise the return to form um todd gilchrist calls it the best 3d horror film ever made which uh, um i i love todd i read his stuff but that's a great disservice to the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, perhaps let's put modern up there. Uh, I would say that uh, the remake of My Bloody Valentine also mm-hmm. is right up there. But I do, I do agree. It's like an incredible return to form. They found a way to uh, mix it up so that you don't exactly know who's going to reach the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's so full of unknowns outside of David Koechner. You don't know (laughs) who to believe is actually our main protagonist. And it has a great opener. Oh, yeah. And then the shocker of all shockers is how it ends. And which I don't think anyone saw coming. I certainly did not going into it. So I, uh, I would put spoiler alert before I, I would reveal how it exactly ends. I feel so. like you can reveal how a 10-year-old movie ends. But um, yeah, <laughs> I I kept, I went I like back. to give people a warning. The big things I look for is uh, when I know that something is a stealth prequel for something that happened in 2000, I look for how wide are the pants <laughs> and how wide are the ties. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... I, it's a great return to form, but for me, what I didn't so much enjoy about it was they, you know, they know that the people come for the deaths. Um, what, and none of the, no death in Final Destination is realistic, although we like it because it's freak accidents. Like I always tell people about yeah. uh, Isidore Duncan, one of the pioneers of modern dance. She died in the most freak accident way, which is basically that her scarf, as she was uh, driving away in her little convertible and waving goodbye to everyone, her scarf got wrapped around like the wheel and like strangled her to death. Oh my god! Yeah, um, that's it. That's what you learn in dance history when you go to art school. Um. <laughs> Welcome to dance history. I'm glad you all brought your leotards. <laughs> now we're going to talk about how scarves can kill you while you're driving. Now you're going to say this has nothing to do with dance, but I promise it does. Yeah. Um, and Isadora Duncan actually famously used scarves in a lot of her choreography, so people still do that. And it's really weird. They're like, how do you not think of death? Um, so I'm really into the mousetrap death and the like ways that you didn't think you could die like a good example is like this probably wouldn't happen but it could happen is um in the third when texas battle is um doing a shoulder press and the (laughs) who named this child (laughs) we have i'm sorry we have to stop the show (laughs) there's just 
the idea that that is your name. Yes. And then you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go into an acting. Actor. No one else has my name. And you're like, you're right. It's very memorable, but it's also too memorable. Yes. And also easily forgettable because no one wants to memorize it. No. Um, so when... Um when they're at the uh, the training camp um, and he's doing the shoulder press and the weights yeah. which are being held in place by some sort of cord are sliced yes. and uh, squish his head, that probably couldn't happen because we don't make machines like that anymore. And even in, like, I, I'm a gym rat. I've been in the cheapest, oldest gyms. They, they don't make them like that. But you, you tell yourself, okay, they could. That could happen. Um also, that scene is great to me because as someone who hates the Boston Bruins, you got everyone screaming, fuck the Bruins, right before a guy gets splat killed. Ooh, it it, uh, <laughs> it makes my heart sing. But um, when the desk get like, it's a little bit too much of like, there's too much beet red blood flying at you and um, very like computer at like, uh, digitally added in um so things like with the the bridge sequence when you see a person who is flying like on a really really bad green screen down into the water and she hits the water and somehow that doesn't kill her but then a car falls on top of her i'm just like <laughs> i feel like you could have just given me the she falls into the into the water and that would have been enough but it's like this thing of like they're having so much fun they can't help themselves and because you add in that it's almost no practical effects anymore um i it was a little less fun for me because i'm like i just want to see someone's intestines that are actually a a condom full of old meat get splattered that's what i want to see um so it was a little bit less fun to or it was like watching a bunch of people having fun in a joke that I am just a little bit too late to. I'm like, oh, I'm not part of this, you know? Um, and it also looks better in 3D. That's yes. the, the the crux of those films that were filmed in 3D, specifically made to be 3D, mm-hmm. is that those, those digital effects play better when there's a separation of field. Yep. And when they're flattened, the artificiality of them is just amplified. There's no better uh, example I can think of for that than the the gymnastics death, which a lot of people point to as one of their favorite deaths in the series. Uh, so I, um, I'm not a gymnast, but I am an acrobat. And a lot of people don't realize there's a difference. Um, basically, like I, I'm dance trained, not gymnastics trained. So I can do gymnastics skills, but I did not learn it in a gymnastics gym. Um, Mm -hmm. and I haven't done apparatus stuff a lot. I have like done a little bit of training to supplement, but like I've done beam. I can't do bars at all. Um, but watching it, um, first of all, the way that she lands and kind of on her chest and that snaps her back, that wouldn't actually, so (laughs) there's a thing in acrobatics called a chest stand where you balance on your chest. I think I can still do it, but you have to be a very close bender. Um, that wouldn't actually snap your back. You can kind of roll out of it and kind of just push yourself out of it. But it's also just that the way when she comes in, like you've never seen a faker dead body in your life. That would look really, really cool in 3D. But she yeah. is flattened. She is very gray. Um, and it's really uninspired to me. Um, 
the the I think what makes the gymnastics death fun is like the building of you have no idea where this death is going to come from. Just it's going to get you. It's because also gymnastics mm-hmm. gyms are some of the messiest places you've ever been. For safety needing to be the utmost, like it's normal to just turn around and be like, oh, there's a bag of um, laundry here for some reason. It's just like the team outfits or something. Like oh, what's at the end of the <laughs> beam? Oh, a bunch of a uh, bunch of toys from the waiting room are just hanging around at the end of the beam. Um, the the last the fun fact about me the last thing i did before the original 2020 lockdown was go to gymnastics and thought i could get back into this i should get back into this i love being on a trampoline and uh i have not <laughs> done doesn't? that since so here's a question for you patrick sure is death bad at his job it's <laughs> it's as presented in the final destination series he's definitely He's not taking great notes. He's not paying attention to the job or he's he it's almost as if he's getting paid by the twist. (laughs) Where it's like it's like when we talked about the first one, there's almost the impression that death is trying to outwit the FBI. Mm -hmm. You're like, what does death have to fear from the FBI? What are they going to do? (laughs) Put him in jail? Like there's no point in hiding his tracks or trying to make it appear like one of the other survivors is secretly killing these people. It doesn't matter. Like it just, it, it make, it personifies death to the point where he's like, I don't know if they catch me doing this again, I'm going to be in real trouble. No, you're not. You're you're not. And it, it almost has him like fretting in an office. Like, how am I going to pull this one off? Death, come on, death, you can do you this. You come to realize that death is not it's actually not that, that powerful. Like, death is like the associate yeah. level guy who makes forty two grand a year and clocks out at four fifty seven. Um, he's right. um, because one of the things I find interesting is I wonder what kind of game death is playing. And of course, it's Final Destination. I'm I'm not supposed to be taking it that seriously. But like, is death giving? Alex and Kimberly and Wendy and all these people, is he giving them visions or is it they're very clairvoyant? Because like the fact that there are so many signs, it's like he's playing with it and mocking it, but then he is so regretful about what he screwed up that he has to go back and correct it. And uh, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. My cat, Ben, uh, who I talk about a lot on this podcast, he's a big boy. He's a good big boy. When I first got him, uh, it was actually my very stupid roommate who got him, and she neglected him a lot. And so he used to misbehave a lot. And um, I was uh, home alone one day cleaning in the kitchen, and he starts meowing at me like, hello, mother, give me attention. And I turn around, and he's standing on the dining room table. And there's a glass next to him and then he just swats the glass off and shatters it and i was like oh he wanted me to watch him do that what the fuck um you know and it's like you're you're a bad boy but also you're very smart and i realized that's kind of what death is doing it's kind of making sure you're looking at him before he knocks the glass off the table <laughs> and so it's like it's a weird mix of he's bad at his job but also he's gonna make up for it by being like a smarmy little dick it's like oh no i i meant for this to be uh to be a little funny yeah right <laughs> and also i i think Part of it is the idea that death doesn't directly influence other people. Yeah. Like he doesn't like send a serial killer after you, no. or, you know, he has this like 
Rube Goldberg-esque elements where small things turn into big things dead. Mm -hmm. And as such, um, you know, as as the franchise goes on, they leave behind the whole you know, covering death's tracks element of it. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's just a Rube Goldberg thing. Yeah. Like one thing leads to another dead and it gets clearer as it goes, but it is so patently odd that they felt the need to like set up Alex as the cause. Now, in terms of like, where are they getting the, the premonitions from? Mm-hmm. I think that is a legit interesting question Mm -hmm. in terms of i don't think personally death is causing that premonition because that would be screwing up death's design Mm -hmm. i think in the classic x-files stephen king tradition these are ordinary people where one person is slightly touched and they happen to be in one place where the universe is is the universe is, is thinned and they have an extrasensory premonition of what is about to happen and death's like fuck again another one of these guys i mean come on man i'm just trying to do my job and as a result has to clean up what has because this was the design then it doesn't happen it's like well these people are still on the schedule i hate to tell you (laughs) like i'm not saying like you don't want to be alive. I would love for you to be alive, but this is the way it goes. Everyone on this freeway, everyone who was on this bridge, everyone who was in that section of the NASCAR race is dead. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yep. And as such, um, you know, they have this small, to put it in Stephen King terms, quartet, people who are bound by a mystical journey together. And um, they, you know, you have the protagonist who's like, this is something that I've foreseen. You know that it happened once. I'm not crazy. And then crazy stuff keeps happening. And the people who are surviving are like, oh, I don't believe in this, but I believe in it enough because you've been around it that I'm going to start to believe, but it's too late and movie yeah. over. You know, it's a, it is a formula, but it is such a bizarre formula in comparison to crazy person has a knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or we're going to replace these high school student delinquents with robots. <laughs> or- it's um, Another thing <laughs> that I love is how much of a stickler death is for rules because in uh, more blatantly in the fourth, but also in one scene in the second, it introduces the idea that death will not accept anyone going out of order to the point where he won't let someone commit suicide. And in the... Yeah. Uh, or sorry, I should say die by suicide. Uh, in in the scene in Final Destination 2, it's a, a guy uses a gun and it's all blanks. And in the fourth, you see a guy literally hanging and he's just like, nope, my airways won't close. Um, it's uh, And he's like, I tried to take a bunch of pills. I just threw them up. And so death is not an agent of chaos. Death is actually extremely meticulous because like his bosses are going to be mad if the wrong person shows up at the wrong time. <laughs> he does not at, ever at any point resort to I, I just want, I, I don't care what order, they have to go in this order. I will add, though, that he does a lot of things that endanger a lot of people for the sake of killing one or two, like the exhausting theater death scene in Final Destination 4. Um, but hey, don't ask me to explain death logic. He's death. Um, 
<laughs> Here's another question for you, because I've seen a sure. lot of people who say that three is the best one. Uh, why? <laughs> well, okay. I think the the trick that three does that really works in its advantage is it finds a lot of inv- more than a couple inventive ways for people to die. Mm-hmm. And as such, it is a roller, a, a true roller coaster throughout. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, th- that pair, they're very smart about what they do. They know how to manipulate an audience. Mm-hmm. They, they have a flair for character. They're just, they're good at it. I, I wish they were both still making movies mm-hmm. and making movies together uh, because they just have a flair. And three does has a series of wild, fantastic, fun, almost bus smash moments one after the other that are kind of like, the. it's just, that's a lot of fun. Mm. It just, the roller coaster thing is, it's too technical mm. for, for what they're trying to do. It looks too fake. Extremely. Um and this is in the aftermath of like, I think the opening of, of the house, uh, house on haunted Hill uh, remake has uh, something where they, they manipulated the Hulk coaster in Florida. Mm-hmm. And that is a better use of roller coaster scares than, than this. Uh, I would even call the movie, the, the disaster movie roller coaster uh, has better suspense sequences yeah. than this. And that starts George Siegel as a roller coaster inspector. Who's trying to find someone who's bombing roller coasters with a performance by sparks. Uh, so <laughs> that's the other element of this franchise, which differentiates it from any other slasher, which is, a, it's a combination. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a remix. So, you are smashing in disaster movies mm-hmm. with slasher movies. Yeah. And as such, like the best part of disaster movies are the wild ways in which people die. Like that's really why you're watching a, a towering inferno mm-hmm. or an airport movie yeah. is to get to know this famous person who's just way too famous to be in this shitty movie. And then, Lo and behold, they're in a glass elevator and it slips from its cable and it crashes to the ground. You're like, bye bye, <laughs> Oscar nominee from 1942. Yeah. And that's the fun. And so this kind of combines those elements. As such, three does have just a wild mix mm-hmm. of interesting deaths that they just kind of had in their back pocket. Or since they since the evolution of two, they knew they had to up their game and they do and they do it the, the arguably the best of, of, of anyone there's one thing with three which i will say and i think i'm going to say this for the lightning round it does contain my individual favorite death of the um of the entire franchise and what i think also looks the best in that movie but it's a surprise um i feel like mm. because you know with horror and you know the whole premise of your podcast is the way you develop or usually underdevelop your characters I feel like they took notes from the last couple, like, oh, we've got to really make Wendy a character. We got to give her some clear road. Yeah. And instead of instead of making her a character, what they do is have her repeat over and over with this kind of mumbly frown. You know, I'm such a control freak. I'm such a control freak. And they spend so much of the movie telling me that she is a control freak. And which also it's thematically, of, it, like, 
I don't know. And they, they also try really hard to get preachy with the goth kid talking about these two girls didn't even make it to 18. And like, it's the kind of thing that comes to nothing. Whereas at least Todd's Long Island eulogy kind of like does come back thematically. They're just putting in this weird like, like, oh, no, these are real characters that we want you to care about. It's like, come on, you know that we're just here for the smashy. True, but this brings up two of my co-host Gina's, you know, big things. Um, one is, is that if everyone has to tell you a character is a certain way mm-hmm. and you never see that character be a certain yeah. way, that character really no. isn't. Um, the, you know, you're so great with the ladies or, you know, I'm a control freak or, you know, you know that Jimmy's the best at football and you never see him play football. <laughs> It's all these things where they're projecting onto a character rather than displaying in action what their character is, because that's difficult to do and it changes the dynamic of scenes and so forth. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you see a lot of movies do that a lot better these days. A side note is that if you have a cast of characters that you hate, (laughs) it does make it less fun. And this Mm -hmm. was it. We just talked to, about he knows you're alone, and I would argue that the the guys in that movie, because it is such a bifurcated uh, circumstance, where it's so about traditionalism and these three young women who do not want to follow a traditional path, and yet one of them is getting married, and she has doubts about what marriage will mean because. She doesn't want to be in a traditional marriage situation. She would like to continue with college. She would like to have a career and her would-be husband doesn't want her to have any of that. And yet they're getting married in two weeks. They have to work this shit out. Um, but those guys are so fucking heinous mm. that you're like, oh my God, can they die tomorrow? <laughs> like, let's get going. At a certain point in the slasher s- series, you get to like Friday Five where it, it's... It's the worst of all possible situations. You have people who are in a halfway home because they've had serious mental illness issues. And you're like, not only are they mentally ill working towards uh, being back in a world that's not going to offer them any comfort, but they're also all assholes. Every single one of them are just virulent jerks. You're like, why, why would I, why do I, why do I want to, why do I want these people killed? I don't care about them. And on top of it, they have serious problems, which, you know, this is not helping (laughs) this ambulance driver. Who's managed to assume Jason's persona just cause. And from that moment on horror movies, just like it's full of assholes. You get to watch die. It's like, Oh, that's not as much. I'm sorry. That's not as good. That's what I think is a really good part about Final Destination 2 is that it very efficiently gives you just enough to like these characters and like them for unique ways. Like, you know, the the cokehead guy, he has that moment where like, hey, if I die, can you clean out, you know, all my drug stuff so that my mom doesn't get sad? And like, um, yeah. or the, um, the mother and son who are c- killed pretty early on. And she says, you know, like four years ago, my husband died. Now my child's died. Like, I just want to be at peace or whatever. And I think it's, 
a nice little character thing that as she's getting her her head squished by the elevator, she is screaming, I don't want to die. It's like, oh, there you added in that nice little character thing. That was really efficient. Uh, You didn't have to do all this exposition because, again, you know that we want the smashy, but you just, you know, I will say for once, kudos butterfly effect, guys. Um, But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nothing else though <laughs> and the only kudos they will get because i will not be giving kudos as a treat. to the butterfly effect. as a treat um i also think five <laughs> number five does a decent enough job of um it's it's very exposition heavy but it does actually make you care about these characters um i never remember the name of the main character or in the fourth one um so i'm just yeah. gonna call him steve but um, what I like about Steve is that he um, he develops a very pragmatic approach by the end of the film. He's like, yeah, death is probably coming for me, but I'm going to go work at the restaurant now. Like, what else am I going to do? Like, <laughs> Right. He's not. Is, it, he understands it's a force yeah. out of his control. It's, I mean, there's. It's clearly just a device to get him into the restaurant because, you know, like it's death. You, you do not want to be in a kitchen restaurant. And so it's just a device to get him there. But I really love that he's approached the levels of not giving a shit. Um yeah. Well, there's only so many times you can have a character go off to a cabin and duct tape, you know, cloth dolls against the wall. And you're like, what the fuck are you doing? And eating his mashed like, bananas. <laughs> right. <laughs> smashed bananas. Oh. In, a, in a metal tin, uh, I still don't quite. I don't, I, it might have been mashed bananas. Oh, yeah. It, but that I was... do want to know the actual intention of it because no one would wrap mashed bananas that much it's the only thing i've seen that level is sterno and the stuff that you put into deviled eggs so yeah and i um obviously do not eat animals and so do not know the horror of looking around for a bone um the closest i've come is (laughs) eating banana blossoms which are not bananas um, but they it makes really good vegan fish and they have little kind of splintery things in them that are almost like bones and i remember sawa saying that he was told like pretend you're eating like a a pureed meat or something and like the the expression on your face is you're looking for a bone that could kill you i'm like well then maybe you should be getting baby food alex because that is you know what you should be eating like a baby um but uh so one thing i also really like about five that resets things a little bit is Uh, I did the math. Between one and four, the length of time between the start of the film and the initial disaster gets smaller and smaller, to the point where three and four are the two where notably you are on site of the disaster when it starts. In four, the disaster happens less than seven minutes in. I think before you get like 10, even like the first one is closer to 15. Um, Five pulls back a little bit. It's not quite 15 minutes, but you do get a little bit more exposition and makes these characters into more than faceless nobodies. The kind of romantic subplot is very soap opera-y, but I'm not I'm not watching Final Destination for it to be the tragedy of Macbeth. You know, I'm not looking for mm-hmm. Denzel-level acting, but um, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? Denzel Washington in a Final Destination But you movie. also don't get it, so yeah. there's that. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, and it remembers that it has a sense of humor. I think, I think Kechner is like kind of adorable in it as this like boss who just doesn't like... He wants his he wants everyone to be happy and like how do I help them get over this massive disaster? I should give them another pizza Friday. Like um 
yeah. he's, he's, he's a, a middle manager prime for the for one sure. thing about it. It cycles through the deaths really quickly, um, which it's, it's fine. Like I like, I, I like in the uh, first, second and third, uh, the fourth also cycles through the deaths really quickly. Like it literally, you know, ends one scene of the person dying and then you have a scene like in the kitchen or something where the protagonist finds like that guy died and then cut to the next death. Um, I like a little bit more world building in between, you know, like you have your Ali Larder and Devon Sawa sneaking off to a to a morgue between having having some flirtation. Um, She's never felt more alive. <laughs> oh, God, he's such a wonderful creep. But so, um, uh, Patrick, we're coming to my favorite part of Peak Show, the lightning round. Sure. Um, and I try to All incorporate right. a little bit of what you call choose your own death venture one of my favorite parts of Kill mm-hmm. by Kill. But so, of the six main protagonists, because I'm counting Clear as well as Alex, Kimberly, Wendy, uh, oh, Nick and Sam are four and five. Yeah, who, Sam, not Steve, I guess. Yeah. Who do you think is actually the most interesting? Uh, I I think, weirdly enough, what they attempt to do with Clear in, in two is kind of a big dumb swing. Mm-hmm. They try to make her into Sarah Connor. Yeah. And so as a result, I, I do like that they, this, you know, sort of flighty, arty character has been, you know, doing pull-ups on a, on a, on a bed that she's suspended from the ceiling or whatever the fuck. <laughs> and so that, that is kind of uh, interesting. They're all sort of voids. Uh, the reason that you know, Friday, the final destination three is brought up is because you got Mary Elizabeth Winstead and she's naturally the most interesting thing you're going to see most often on screen. Wow. So, but I, I will give it to clear rivers. from two. Yeah. Cause they, they do trying to evolve her into something else. And so I, I will, you know, that's actual character, uh, you know, definition. All right. So which big premonition disaster is your favorite? Oh, it's two, two with, with five close behind because they are the, they are the pinnacles of the natural disaster mix Mm -hmm. that makes final destination what it is. Um, and two is just so evocative and so common Mm -hmm. because all of us just drive for the most part. Um, you know, and you get caught in that situation and we've all been there. My uncle, um, died on a motorcycle oh behind a log truck. Oh my gosh. Like, Ooh. yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's, it, it feels visceral and it feels real. Yeah. And five, unfortunately with our, you know, particularly in, in America, our infrastructure has been right. crumbling for years and we have had multiple um, bridge disasters over the last 20. Oh, even That recently, no one seems right? to... Yes, in in Pittsburgh, right. uh, a, a town that is filled with bridges, like it's on three fucking rivers. You you are on a bridge every okay. day, so it's particularly difficult there that no one can quite seem to find the money to hold them up when that infrastructure is so necessary. So again, it's just I think those are the ones that um, execute the highest. Uh, all right, so. Um- for me, number two for sure, but I actually, my close runner-up is number one, and the one thing sure. that I um, 
that I can't stand and kind of won't forgive number five for is the way it kind of not even retconned the disaster, but decided like, we're going to show a different perspective of the plane disaster and make it more like, I know it's Final Destination, so you got to show the deaths, but I would have preferred just like, you see that they're going on to Vole Air Flight 180 and you maybe see some mm. archive footage of Devon Sawa in the background and that's it and you know what's going to happen. Um, because again, it's there's a lot more flying 3D crimson blood um, and uh, yeah, that's not, it's not my style, but it's, right. it's someone's style. So who do you think yeah. is the actual best actor in a Final Destination movie? Out of the entire franchise, the person who ultimately becomes the best actor and was the best actor at the time is, again, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. <laughs> she is a natural movie star and she is very, she, she can, she does the best with that ham-fisted shoving the, the character note mm -hmm. in her face of I'm such a control freak, <laughs> the best. I will go to bat for Sean William Scott. He's so precious. In that. The most charming, in my mind, the most charming performance mm -hmm. he, he gave in that era of him. Yeah. Because he's had to settle into being Stifler for the rest of his life. Yeah. Because he's probably closer to Stifler in terms of how he tells a joke and how he deals with the world. I don't think he's as much of an a-hole as Stifler is. Mm. But he's doing a general genuine twist on what he is in that movie and yeah. i think because he was brought in so late mm -hmm. um, we we wouldn't see like i said we wouldn't see that again until he was doug glatt in goon which is why i think i love goon so much because he actually is really good at playing a little dorky goofy softy and something about his facial expressions also in final destination Kind of, he has that, like, I'm about to jump out of my skin energy, like, kind of, his eyes will always mm. bug a little bit. He does this kind of nervous smile, and it's it's really precious. I'm going to actually go for my choice for best actor with a bit of a dark horse, which is A.J. Cook, uh, who is the protagonist of the second oh, okay. movie, uh, also notably mm -hmm. in The Virgin Suicides. Um, for some reason, I mix her up a lot with Caroline Davernis from uh, from Hannibal, which I think is because sure. they both play love interests in one of my favorite dumbass movies, Out Cold. Um, it is a movie for dumbasses. <laughs> Zach Galifianakis gets his penis stuck in a hot tub jet in that movie. <laughs> it's a great kind of like, like the, 80s style. It's like a Disney version of, uh, of, of Hot Dog the movie, that one, where it's like a <laughs> ski school. Is that what that is? Yeah, but it's, it's a bit mm. more crude. But yeah, A.J. Cook plays kind of like the secondary love interest in that movie. And um, I think, I don't know, she's an actress that I think could have had like a, a, a Kirsten Dunst level career of getting into more prestige movies and stuff and she just didn't really um, um plus she got that tv money she ended up on on a cbs procedural right. for more than a decade i mean she's doing fine yeah she's she's, she's doing her life. fine she can probably say yes or no to whatever she wants but um yeah i thought yeah. she i thought she carried it really well because you know, I find in horror, sometimes with women and female protagonists, you have either they're shell-shocked and so vulnerable the whole time that they feel like they lose their autonomy, or they are so, like, you can tell right away, this is your final girl, she has impossible strength, nothing affects her. I think she has a lot of strength in that movie, but also remembers that her character is supposed to be a little bit fucking traumatized from, from what mm -hmm. happened to her. So I think she sure. carries it really well. 
Okay, so which Final Destination death is the likeliest to happen to you? Death by laser eye surgery. (laughs) This, This sounds like something that is so instantly a dumb thing to happen that it is totally something would happen to me. It's superfluous. No one has to get laser eye surgery. And yet you do it because you're vain (laughs) (laughs) or you just like dislike the inconvenience of putting in contacts or, or wearing eyeglasses. And it's just technology that should work and doesn't. That's me to a T, baby. Mm-hmm. That's 100%. <laughs> um, fun fact, my ex got laser eye surgery, and the one thing he always talked about was free, because you're awake during that, is how much it smells, because you smell your flesh burning. Woo! Yeah. Um, yeah. When, you, when you have, like, something, someone do something to your tooth, too, you're, like, smelling bone being sawed in half. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah. It's not a pleasant smell. You don't want to smell it. It doesn't portend good things. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I know statistically I am likely to have some sort of gymnastics death because, like I said, I love going to gymnastics, but I'm not particularly well trained in the apparatuses. So, um, you know, that's probably likely for me. Um, but I would mm-hmm. actually say getting hit by a bus because I, um, I don't pay a lot of attention to what I'm doing. And I feel like mm-hmm. getting hit by a bus is the kind of thing that could happen just by being an idiot. And the fact is, I am not always aware of my surroundings. I would be terrible in one of these movies because I'm so not aware of my surroundings. Um, so sure. I had essentially the same uh, question written twice, I realized, in terms of best protagonist. So I I'm, I had to kind of think of a new one on the fly. Who is the worst protagonist You're calling an audible. to you? Calling an audible. Who is the worst protagonist to you? Uh, and you, you pick your poison of who you think the protagonist is in the final destination. Right. I, I don't know that I've ever seen the great Nick Zeno performance. So I'd throw him in there real fast. Yes. It just, it's full of, uh, also rands and Mm -hmm. just pick your poison there. It's just, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. And everyone's terrible in it. Yeah. And like, what's interesting is, you know, you talk about horror and people like to say it's where you go to watch like shitty characters die. No one besides, you know, the terrible racist in that movie is a terrible character. But there's also nothing that I've been given to like about these people. It's like, yeah, they, you know, they're they're just, they're just nice. Like, there's nothing, uh, I don't know anything about them. I don't know. What are you studying in school? What what Do you like to read? Like, give me something. Right. Are you like Allie Larder who likes to read while she's walking and pulling her suitcase behind her? Uh, yeah, no, no one likes Nick. I agree with you. Okay, so now mm-hmm. we get to uh, kind of my own spin on Choose Your Own Death Adventure, but would you rather sudden death edition? Would you rather get suddenly mm-hmm. struck by a bus or suddenly get sliced in three by a flying fence? 1000% bus. Uh, by the time you realize what has happened, your head is uh, in the back of the bus. You're already halfway to the next stop. I just, as far as instant goes, like you, you're still conscious of how much it would hurt to be uh, sliced in three in yep. my mind. Yeah. Whereas bus, it is, you're, you're out. Yeah, you you are an empty shell. Your your soul has has been left behind, and your body's still going to uh you know, 
to uh, State Street. So I, I'm taking the bus for one slightly different reason, which is that I, for having been to a lot of open casket funerals in my life, I don't care for open casket funerals simply because, you know, the last last one I was at was my grandfather's and we're hanging around and I'm like, it is weird that I'm just talking to my cousins, catching up here and there's my grandpa and his face two, two feet away from right. me. And so yeah. I don't want to leave a viable corpse, to be part of an open casket funeral. Twist my head all the way around, bus. Because, um, yeah. uh, you know, you get sliced in half at the right place. They're still going to try to make that into something. Um, it's not a question I need an answer to. No? Uh, closed casket. Thank you very much. So would you rather excruciating slow death edition, get burned to death in a tanning bed, or get strangled to death by a clothing line? This is really hard. Um <laughs> I'm not, burning is terrible mm-hmm. and strangulation is terrible and it takes forever. Mm-hmm. Like they're both forever bad. Uh, I think strangulation, I guess <laughs> uh, I've seen somebody who, who hung themselves. It's not Yikes. pleasant. No. Um, but uh, man, I don't dig on the burning. So, uh, I guess strangulation. Well, what a, what a shit sandwich choice that is. It that's is. For sure. I know. I didn't want to make it easy. So um, here's where I will say the tanning bed death is my favorite death in all of Final mm-hmm. Destination. I think it is... It is the one that is not a big splat. I, I keep coming back to the ruby red, you know, beet juice blood deaths. Um, it's done really well practically. And I think the only reason I would choose that over uh, Todd's death, first of all, you're dying with a friend. That's always nice. Sure. Um, yeah. And again, you guarantee that nice closed casket. But um, I think with the um, what really gets you and what actually kind of gets your empathy muscles working with Todd's death is you see him really try to get out. You see him try and there's, he has like this hope of maybe my field, maybe I'll be able to get this. And like, he just can't. I feel like if you're, if you know you're trapped in a tanning bed and then all the lights have burst and you are just cooking, like at a certain point, you know, you're going to die. And at least Mm. at that point, your brain is probably releasing some chemicals to make this a little bit easier. Uh, So I think like knowing, oh, you know what? I got no way out of this. That's the one comfort I can take from that. (laughs) (laughs) So the breathe a jog asks, would you rather athlete death edition? Would you rather get your head smushed between two sets of plates? Or would you rather have your entire body snap in two after flying off uneven bars? Always go for the head death. Always go yeah. for the head death. It's instantaneous. <laughs> it's, I don't want, I don't want to realize what has happened. Yeah. That, that's the thing that you get from the body snap mm-hmm. is that as quick as that is, there's still a moment of realization as to what has happened. You've felt it. And I think the head smushing happened so fast that you would not. Yes. Um, for some reason, though, I just picture after she does that landing, I picture someone like holding up a big 10 above their head. Like, good job. <laughs> Um, The one thing I was always told when I did do gymnastics was I would screw up every pass I did, but then do a really nice present after like, like (laughs) pretend you didn't fuck it up, kid. Um, It's always going to come back to that closed casket factor for me. Um, But I think I think that what I like about Lewis's death is he was not scared before it happened. 
it was just sure. boom. She was she was nervous the entire time. This this girl, like, I mean, she was at a gymnastics meet. You're you're gonna be nervous, but um, you know, his last moment was him being surrounded by his buddies screaming "fuck the Bruins," and then he went night night. You know, <laughs> like that's that's a good way to go. Sure. So, if you could have any song pretend your death, what would it be? Word up by Cameo. Okay. <laughs> um, I've often I've told people since I. Uh, was a teenager that the song that is to be played at my funeral is Candy by Cameo. Mm -hmm. It has the best bass line in the world. Um, so uh, Word Up would be the thing that would lead you into my passing and then Candy by Cameo would be the thing that marches me out. That's really cute. Um, for me, um, El Chepe by Wolfpack is something that... Um, it's very slow, like it's it's a pleasant song, but there's something about the slow, relaxed tone of it that's very foreboding. And mm -hmm. um, also you hear a train in, in it. Um, sure. Wait a minute. Yeah, I got to give you guys credit because you were the only person who acknowledged uh, my husband, who is a train enthusiast, in the first in the first movie, the train that kills Sean William Scott. My husband immediately goes, that's a Canadian Pacific train. Like he was so excited. I, I have to give credit to my dad, who was the person who pointed ah, it out to me but yeah, way, so way back. You can hear a train uh, in that. And I'm just like, there's something creepy about this. This would be in the horror movie about my life. Um, okay. So on that note, our final question, look around you in whatever room you're in. And what is one object nearby that you think would make a cool final destination death? Uh, the couch next to us, this is our office predominantly, but it's our mother-in-law suite for, for family and friends from out of town where they sleep. And it, it's a fold-in couch. And I've always had a fear that you could just be folded up in one of these fucking things. <laughs> Pro probably due to uh, a, a not very good film, Freddy versus Jason, which has a folding bed situation <laughs> with a very bad boyfriend involved. So I love candles. I like that is the most basic white girl part about me. I'm a big tomboy, but I fucking love candles. Like I spent way sure. too much money on them. So I'm looking and I see this candle that literally says slow burn on it. That could be cool. That could be cool. However, I am also I will point to this object now uh, for since this is an audio medium listeners at home. This is a ceramic hand that holds on it. My, my necklaces, my wedding ring, my bracelets. It's a tangled mess, but I somehow managed to get at least two necklaces off it every day. Um, and I can just, I look at this and I can see myself kind of tripping into it and getting kind of like a ceramic up the nose type of death. Like this sure. would, cause final destination fire isn't really funny. Getting a yeah. ceramic hand through your face is kind of funny. Right. It would be like right after you said, oh, gag me with a spoon and did that one motion where you <laughs> put a, a finger towards your mouth like, oh, gross, gag me with a spoon. Yeah. And then you would trip fall on top of it. Well, uh, it's perfect timing because we barrel toward our conclusion, which is the peak. And I love to tell people. Peaks mean different things for different people. It could mean when was something the best? When were you most into it? But I must ask you, Patrick Hamilton, when did Final Destination peak for you? Well, I, in terms of its cinematic quality, the opening of, of Final Destination 2 is when it is absolutely dialed into the height of what it can be. It finds that perfect relatable situation and the shock and awe of the deaths 
and it happens one after the other and it just reaches a, a wonderful conclusion um, and you're just really dialed into that movie for every moment after. There are moments in three and five that touch it, mm-hmm. but none surpass it. Uh, in terms of what Final Destination has done, the best thing that's ever happened is the original DVD had a, a little interior clock thing where you would put in your birthday and it would tell you when you would die. Oh, yeah. It's a frightening concept. Have you passed that date? Uh, Yes, I passed it. It was 2018 when I was supposed to die. Shit, death is coming for you. Um, yeah, well, so. death has has been coming for me for a long time. Damn. So get in line. Yeah. Um, so for me, I would say I took, and I do this a different way for every episode, but I looked at Peak as when could this have ended? And I'd have been so fine with it. And mm. I keep going to two, which is interesting because, I mean, and it, just tells you how unforgiving franchise cinema is now, even compared to 2003, because with how little Final Destination 2 grossed, you would think they would have killed the series after that. Um, and if it were 2021 or 2022, they probably would have because it's like, oh, this didn't bring in a bigger return than the last one. You're, you're dead. Um, so I'm at least grateful that they didn't give up on it. But for me, you could have ended after number two because number two is the only one that was really interested in adding a little bit of depth to the mythos um, and kind of because the whole premise of two is this is death cleaning up all the ag- all the leftovers and, you know, people that were supposed to die but didn't because of Alex's premonition in the first. Um, it was the only one that really connected to the others. And then... Um, you know, when you think about the idea of this was originally an X-Files spec script, it actually kind of feels like, you know, two or three seasons later, they go back and, hey, Scully, remember when your brother did that? And like you, because X-Files did that occasionally, they revisited, you know, their monsters of the week. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really go with number two. And I think three through five are kind of nice little like I could watch this on an afternoon, uh, which is uh, my next question, which is if you were to recommend this to a friend, would you recommend watching it the whole way through chronological random? Um, I think for the most part, one through three and five, I think the final destination is inherently inessential to Mm -hmm. borrow a term from the onion TV club. It's just not required reading. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it's kind of a bummer. That being said, if the goal is to sit down with, uh, you know, uh, an alcoholic beverage with friends, or as they say, and we hate movies, a tall glass of water, um, you're going to have a fun time with these films. They're yes. meant to be seen in a group and enjoying one another's company and having reactions and screams and so mm-hmm. forth. I don't think they, they make the best solo watches necessarily unless horror movies are your thing or conversely, if disaster movies are your thing. Yeah. I think one and two are very good solo watches. And so if you tell someone who, who lives in Ontario and so, you know, they might, might be going through another lockdown. Hey, here's a great movie to watch alone. One and two can very much be watched alone. Three through five, I would actually tell people, watch any one of these because you know what's going on. Five minutes in, you know what's going to happen. So just kind of pick your poison. Do you like roller coasters? Do you like bridge disasters? Like, you know, it's 
It's fun. I would say that the deaths in four, though, aren't interesting or fun enough. So yeah, like you said, it's it's inessential. I would even go as far as to gaslight people and tell them it doesn't exist because uh, that's what I've been <laughs> you, doing to you, myself. You would not know that it doesn't exist. Yeah. It's fine to simply skip it. it There's is. nothing to be offered there unless you're a giant Krista Allen fan. <laughs> and even then, you're not going to get what you want. So how big would you say is the gap between the best of Final Destination and the worst? Like 25 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> it, it comes down to, it's not like the final destination does not follow the formula. It absolutely does. Mm-hmm. It just does not understand what makes the, um, what, what makes a final destination movie, a final destination movie. And that it's a weirdly shitty argument because people can aim that at anything. You People right now are probably saying as of this recording, like this new Batman movie um, hates Batman or doesn't understand Batman. And certainly that's an argument that could be made for like Batman V Superman. When you're like, I don't think the filmmakers writers or the studio at this point, like Superman, mm-hmm. they kind of just are only interested in what if Superman was a distant dick who only cared about his girlfriend. And it's like, that's not Superman. You don't really, you don't really like Superman. Mm-hmm. You can tell that they, the only thing interesting about it is like changing a little bit. And there's a little bit going on in that, in the final destination where they've brought in these characters who are unrepentant dicks mm-hmm. and like, let's enjoy watching this person die ironically by being dragged behind a truck. You are like mm-hmm. a real guy got dragged behind a fucking truck for miles that's that's not entertaining that's not a twist on anything it doesn't make me feel better that a real human being uh, was killed because of the color of his skin behind the back of a truck yep it's not it does it just it feels criminal it feels like you don't understand it and it feels like you secretly hate it yep and the only value it has is how can i uh, bear this grudge. Um, it weirdly, I feel the same way about Freddy versus Jason that it's not like it's the worst movie ever. In fact, it has a great Freddy kill in it, <laughs> but it also is just full of toxic masculine points of view constantly. And it's like, yeah, these people die, but also you're giving a whole bunch of airtime to them. Mm. And it, it's almost as if you're validating their existence and saying um, like, like they needed to share this before they died. It's like, I don't need people to be um, shiny, happy perfection, but also not every guy has to be the worst guy possible, <laughs> but maybe you could mix in one or two who aren't. And not every woman needs to be the virginal, uh, happy-go-lucky, sunny disposition. The, you, It's just so fucking basic. And as a result, The Final Destination comes across with very basic characterizations and puts them through this machine, and you don't feel any better after the fact. No. It's cynical cynical is what it comes down to very much i don't think i could have put it better myself uh so with that patrick now today it's uh this episode is coming out march 17th and i know that uh, kill by kill always does some great stuff in april so why don't you tell our listeners about not only what you guys have coming up at kill by kill but also where they can find you and follow you online 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, March, we're, we're doing some non-franchise stuff. We're wrapping up our After Dark series. Uh, we'll be watching um, Fatal Attraction, the peak, as it were, of the erotic thriller. Um, and then when it comes to April, uh, our tradition is we do animal attacks movies, one after the other, all animal attacks every single Friday. So right now uh, we have a shark movie, a rat movie, uh, a snake movie, a bat movie, um, and oh, an alligator movie. Uh, we we try to find that you have you barely have time to sketch out these characters. How do you make them pop? Idea through the animal attacks films. Um, and then in, in May, the return of dish by dish, our, our Hannibal rewatch. We're watching season three every other Friday. Love that one. Big Hannibal fan. Uh, as for me, I've been your host, Bree Rohde, and I am so happy to be back with you guys for another season of Peak Show. And we're coming at you with so much more great content this season. We have episodes coming up on Taylor Swift, David Fincher, The Babysitter's Club, and more. And you can also go through our back catalog for episodes on Judd Apatow, The Office, Radiohead, Mike Myers, and so much more. You can follow me on Twitter at Breganism, which is like veganism with a B-R-E-E. And you can also follow this podcast, Peak Show, at Peak Show pod on twitter uh don't forget to rate and review us on apple Podcasts or spotify give us five stars or go to hell special thanks to jared daly for our show logo and all of its art and thanks to jack dump for our theme music and thank you for listening i've been brie roadie and remember people are always most alive right before they die No problem. I just, uh, I'm fine being uncomfortable all the time. That's my superpower. (laughs)